All right. Welcome, everybody, back to The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. I can't believe we've been doing this for 12 months. That's crazy to me. It's wild. (laughs) It's wild, yeah, that we've been doing this for for a year. Um, I'm Sarah Kolbeck. I direct the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and my co-host is with me. Hey, I'm Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, assistant professor in the Department of Surgery uh, in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really excited about our episode today. This is a program that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for quite a while, and so I'm really excited that we have Erica Stive here today to talk to us about um, a wonderful program that actually she developed and is working on implementing right now in Wisconsin. Before we get started with that, um, I just want to remind folks that this episode will contain um, conversation about suicide and issues related to suicide. So just um, a quick reminder to take a pause if you need to and try to do something good for yourself today. And then also, if you are in need of any resources for yourself or a loved one, you can always dial the suicide lifeline. Uh, The crisis and suicide lifeline now is actually the the full name. You can reach that by dialing 988. You can also text 988 um, to receive uh, support from that crisis and suicide lifeline. In addition, we have the crisis text line that you can reach by texting the word TALK. So I am really excited, um, as I said, to have our guest with us today, Erica Stive. Erica is a suicide prevention specialist at Mental Health America of Wisconsin. She earned both her bachelor's and master's degrees from UW-Milwaukee, where she studied psychology and public health. And in her work at Mental Health America, Erica brings education and resources to build capacity for suicide prevention in a variety of settings. She currently serves on the Prevent Suicide Wisconsin Steering Committee, which is a public-private partnership to reduce the rate of suicide attempts and deaths. And her lived experience and drive to work toward health equity inspired her to develop the PRISM program, which we're going to be talking about today. And the PRISM program is a new mental health resource for LGBTQ plus youth and adults. Erica is inspired by the peer-led movement in mental health, which centers lived experience and autonomy. And she hopes to use the principles of peer support to establish more community-based resources to avoid carceral interventions for those in crisis. So welcome, Erica, to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here and always love talking with you both about suicide prevention. So back at you. Yes. Yeah. Erica was part of a really great planning retreat that we did for our division just a little over a year ago and we had so much fun. So it's great. I wish we were in person today and hanging out and having some cocoa or something else, but we'll, we'll do this. This is good. And we'll just have to get together some other time. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> So um, before we jump into talking about the PRISM program, I just wanted to take a step back and and ask you a little bit about um, what kind of brought you to this work of suicide prevention. Yeah, so um, I have always been really passionate and interested in mental health. Um, I studied psychology and LGBT studies in undergrad. And for a time, I thought I wanted to be um, a clinical, um, like go into some kind of clinical role. And I actually learned about public health as a practice in one of my undergrad classes. 
and was really just, I love the way it expanded my understanding of health and how, um, the, the conditions we live under really impact the, the health that, that we enjoy and that different communities have access to. So I, I pursued my master's in public health, and that's actually where I, w- I kind of stumbled into suicide prevention. For my uh, field placement, for my MPH, I um, was placed at MHA, and there was a lot of suicide prevention work that needed to be done and that they needed support on. And it was um, really cool to have my public health lens welcomed in that in that sense. It's been such a learning experience for me since then. And I never really thought I'd necessarily end up in suicide prevention, but um, I'm really glad I did because I feel like there's just so many adjacent interests um, that all kind of tie in to, to suicide prevention. And it's it's really an honor to get to approach this in in that way and trying to serve communities across the state of Wisconsin. I'm so glad that you uh, that your journey has led you here and that you're doing this important work. It's been interesting. I, I think a, a theme uh, across some of our uh, guests has been that folks don't necessarily identify suicide prevention as a focus of their career, but that maybe they're drawn to it in some kind of organic way. So that's been kind of cool to to hear, but glad that you're in the space that you're in. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And the public health focus on suicide prevention, I feel is, I don't want to say it's new because I don't think it's new. I think people have been talking about suicide prevention with a public health lens for a long time. It maybe just hasn't been called that necessarily. And so I think it's such a good compliment to a public health focus is such a good compliment to you know, other kind of individual level interventions that are also so important. And it's good to kind of have both of those sectors working together. And so I, I didn't even know public health was a thing until I was, which is sad, um, until I was, you know, a little bit on in my first career and it called to me. So I'm glad public health called to you as well. Yes. Yeah. And shout out to Zilber. We're both Zilber School of Public Health alumni. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one other thing that I like to ask folks before we kind of jump in is what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about suicide? Yeah, I think if I had to boil it down, I, I really just want everyone to know that everyone has the capacity to prevent suicide. And this isn't just um, an area for like, quote unquote, like trained professionals to to worry about. And that um, really every single person has something to contribute um, to help make life more livable for other people and to support others in in their pain. And so there's so many different ways to, to go about that. And people don't think, might not think of themselves as that type of role or have that type of authority or that type of like power, but but really everyone does. And there's there's ways we can intervene on the interpersonal level the community level and the societal level to to really help people have what they need to live um, in this world. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. So that seems like a a perfect segue, Erica, into kind of our discussion of the PRISM program, because I imagine that, you know, that really flows into um, what you just shared about your, your beliefs around this work. So uh, tell us a bit about the the prison program. What what do you do with that, and who's it for? 
Yeah. So yeah, I can um, explain what we do. Uh, so the prison program, like we said, it's a, we think of it as like a mental wellness resource for LGBTQ mental health. We are primarily trying to reach LGBTQ youth who are under the age of 26, really in the range of like 14 to 26. However, we also work with adults upon our quest. And I can talk more about, you know, how we've kind of come to that later. But everyone on the PRISM team is a certified peer specialist. So we've gone through that state certification training. And everyone on the team has their own lived experience um, with mental health or substance use challenges. And everyone on the team identifies as queer and or trans. And so we draw on our lived experience, not only with those struggles, but also just as drawing on our lived experiences as those identities in this world to help other people um, with a variety of different issues, you know, related. And we do this by way of warm line. So um, if our audience doesn't know, um, I can just define that briefly. A warm line is a phone line that's often staffed by people trained in peer support who offer really connection, emotional sanctuary, and just a listening ear. And a warm line is different than a hotline. Um, like we mentioned, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline 988 in the beginning. Like we think of that as a hotline or crisis, uh, local county crisis as a hotline. Those are for people, th those are for assessing safety, really, first and foremost. Whereas a warm line is about providing people that support before you get to that point of crisis. So our warm line can be accessed by call or text. And we also have virtual uh, and in-person support groups as well. So on the warm line, folks get a one-on-one -on -one interaction with a peer specialist, and it can be um, a one-time conversation, or they do have the option to see the same peer specialist again and have kind of an ongoing relationship. Right now, we do have the capacity for that. And then uh, in the groups, of course, like you are also in, in space with the peer specialist facilit facilitating it. But then, you know, it's more of a group aspect in that group dynamic and hearing from other people who are at, at various points in their recovery. Um, so, yeah, really, like there's a, a wide range of, of topics that we support people with, but um, suicide and self-harm comes up quite often and other things as well, just related to like the difficulties of being queer or trans uh, in a society that really isn't completely inclusive of these identities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Erica. Thanks for telling us about that. Could could you share the um, the phone numbers? Uh, uh, you mentioned call or text, right? Yes. So yeah, it's the same phone number um, 414-336-7974. And I should mention too, um, we're not a twenty four hour resource, but we are staffed seven days a week from ten a.m. to ten p.m. And if folks reach out outside of that, um, we will just follow up. Great. Thank you. Great. Yeah, it's such a wonderful resource. And if I'm recalling correctly, you kind of were getting off the ground right at the beginning of the pandemic. Is that right? Like you were maybe doing some in-person sessions and then had to trans like transfer and, and everything over to Zoom. Am I remembering that correctly? How was that transition and how do you think that impacted, you know, the the ability to connect with folks? Yeah, that's a great question. So we were still like in the planning stage when the pandemic hit, but I did have to basically rewrite my plan <laughs> for the program because it was originally supposed to be 
in person with a variety of like social and like educational aspects. And it was supposed to be in Milwaukee just because that's where I live. But yeah, so the pandemic hit and that really encouraged us to think, think about how we can get this resource out there in a virtual sense. And it really has been, you know, I, I just think like the virtual aspect of, of mental health support is such a double-edged sword. We've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying that they are so appreciative that they can just call, that um, it's really easy to talk to someone because there is no um, there is no support in their area for LGBTQ people, or they just have access concerns about um, like they can't afford, you know, to see a therapist or even like get physically getting somewhere would be difficult for them. So we get that feedback. But in addition to that, it has been really hard, I think, because we've been trying to reach youth. 2021 was like our first like pilot year. And 2021, youth were by and large online school all the time. And so that made it really hard to to reach them because I think there was a level of burnout just with, you know, Zoom and calling and texting. And I think that made it hard for youth who... um are in a space where their parents aren't accepting of their queer identity. And it really made it so they couldn't reach out and talk to us as easily because there was nowhere to go and their parents were home too. Wow. Yeah. And, and so um, with the kind of at home, uh, like online school youth that uh, live in environments where they're not supported faced a higher dose of that. So to say there wasn't maybe a refuge to a space that they were supported. Right. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause I think for queer youth in particular, like sometimes school is a stressor, but sometimes school is the safe space. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just like the teacher that they see, or it's their group of friends at the lunch table. Um, so yeah, that was really hard for youth to, to be um, without in that year. Yeah. Yeah. And Erica, you've, alluded to this, but I'd love for you to tell us more about this. You know, what is it about this population that maybe places them at risk for suicide? What are some of the factors that you are trying to mitigate through this work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So LGBTQ youth do face disparities in terms of, um, suicidal ideation and attempts, as well as depression and anxiety and substance use, they experience these things more frequently than youth who are cisgender and straight. And it really largely has to do with these social factors of homophobia, transphobia, as well as like social rejection, family rejection, and bullying um, tend to be the, the real risk factors that we need to be addressing um, to prevent suicide in youth who are, who are queer and trans, it's really important to me for everyone to understand that this is not, these disparities aren't as a result of queer and trans people being deficient or weak in any way um, compared to other people. Right. And I think, I don't know you two understand this, but, um, mm-hmm. but like historically the field of psychology and, and the DSM has pathologized people who are gay and people who are trans and, you know, it was until like the 1970s, I think that um, the DSM still listed homosexuality as a mental illness. And we've moved past that now. Um, but still, trans people have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria to receive the care that they need and deserve. And I think there's something to be said about the pathologization of that 
experience. But, um, but yeah, it's, these disparities really come as a result of that uh, societal rejection that comes out on like the interpersonal levels too. And so what PRISM is, is trying to do to intervene on that is really trying to increase like social support and connectedness for queer and trans youth. And in addition to that, we do a lot of advocacy as well in schools and in different community spaces to just try to in, in, increase understanding of these identities. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing focus to the societal issues at play here, because I think oftentimes when we, you know, when we look at even, you know, data um, showing different outcomes and how they, you know, proportionally affect Groups like LGBTQ youth, for example, we tend to think about, you know, the individual, but we need to change that thinking. And, and again, this is public health role and, and, and bring it to what's happening externally that is leading to these outcomes in, in young people. And so I think it's so important to, to have that focus as we're having this discussion. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate the, um, you know, the, the intention of the prison program, you know, really bringing people together and providing that social connection, because we know that that, you know, can be very helpful for folks, especially if they're dealing with a mental health or suicide related issue. Yeah. One of the things that I, I wanted to mention is that, you know, we keep hearing and I keep hearing about kind of provider shortages, you know, for folks that are interested in seeking, you know, therapy or, or um, services from a, a licensed provider. And there being a shortage and there being very long wait lists and, and things like that, which can be difficult for somebody that is needing support more immediately than that. Do you see PRISM as kind of being a good alternative for LGBTQ folks that maybe are wanting to engage in more formal treatment, but are wanting to or are having to wait because of long wait times? Or do you hear that from folks in your groups? Yeah, the yeah, the the question of access comes up really often and it's true that across the board like there is a shortage of providers and just so many barriers to care and that affects everyone on the on the spectrum of age and gender and sexuality and all of that. And then for LGBTQ people in particular, the access question is also related to cultural competency and and competent, competency in providers to respond to the needs of this population. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a lot of providers who either just don't know about like the queer and trans experience or they might have biased themselves. And that has really created an obstacle uh, for, for, for queer and trans people to get that care. And so, so yeah, so that is part of the thinking with PRISM too, is like, you know, obviously it's important to have providers who are uh, competent in that way, and our PRISM peers have that lived experience of their own to draw on. And by having a warm line, it's easier for people to just call in because we know even just the process of, of finding a, a mental health professional, going through that intake, dealing with insurance is all so stressful. <laughs> Anyone who's done that knows it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Especially in the midst of emotional distress. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, um, Erica, you, I want to just make sure something is like super explicit for our listeners. Like you identified maybe societal factors contributing to the risk. Could you say more about like, what is the antidote? Like, what are you, 
what, what do you see as a solution or uh, something to mitigate that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I really think that homophobia and transphobia is the underlying crisis mm-hmm. behind this um, suicide in this in this group. And I think that, you know, to to really beat that back requires a lot of activity on a lot of different fronts. I think on the interpersonal scale, there's certainly opportunities for improving education and awareness um, just in individuals of like, you know, really what it means to be LGBTQ how you can be more inclusive and things like that. Cause there's a, there's definitely a, a, a need for just increased understanding among people of different generations who just simply don't know. And that's one aspect. And I think that on, in, in other areas, looking more at policies and systems and how we can make them more inclusive, like in, in schools, I think um, particularly because we're talking about youth here, we need policies that are, supportive of LGBTQ students that give them the right to talk about their identities, that give teachers the the security of being able to like outwardly affirm their students, put up pride flags and mm-hmm. things like that. Things that seem, you know, things that on their on their surface don't really, you don't think of as like, oh, this is like suicide prevention. But what what those policies do is make the school a safer place for queer and trans students. And so um, I think like right now there's a great need um, for policy advocacy in that area. And again, just continued education. And yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more work to be done to increase access to gender affirming care um, for this population, too, because, you know, LGBTQ as an acronym um, encompasses so many identities. And it's uh, the the burden of suicide is, is even particularly heavier on trans and gender nonconforming people. And so, you know, the the question of, of access to gender affirming care really is a mental health concern because that affects how they exist in this world. And they have every right to to that care. But like all kinds of health care, it's very difficult to achieve and particularly so because of transphobia. And so so, yeah, like I think to address the the really big structural problems, we we need to be battling on a variety of fronts. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what will support us in doing that is having um, strong communities and organizations that are um, LGBTQ affirming and, and out and proud, um, because really there are, there are more people in this society who support queer and trans people than don't. And sometimes it seems like the opposite. Sometimes it seems like we're fighting an uphill battle, but it's really a small minority of people who um, are just loud and powerful who make it so hard um, for queer and trans people to live in this world. And so when we are stronger um, in our commitment and our, our communities to, to fight for this population, um, we are better, you know, we have the, the, the tools we need to, to build a society that's more expansive for all. I love that question about what is the antidote to this. And I mean, you, I think what you just said, Erica, sums it up so perfectly is, you know, using our voices and and being supportive and affirming. And I think, you know, the other interesting thing that I've read and heard about policies, particularly in schools, is it's important to specifically call out and name support for queer and trans students, not just, you know, kind of role um, that affirmation and that supported to a blanket policy, but to very specifically name support for for queer and trans kids in policies in order for them to really be effective and helpful. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And like, yeah, letting kids have a space to use the name that that is meaningful for them and to use the pronouns that, you know, that make them feel like themselves. And yeah, it's 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 really difficult. And we recognize that, like, you know, even educators who are in a position and they want to to be there for their students, it can be very hard for them as 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 educators to be able to do that in their workspace. So yeah, it, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And there are some schools who are doing it, um, doing it well and providing those resources. But. Awesome. That's really good to hear. Yeah. So, yeah. More work needs to be done for sure. Yeah. Definitely. There's, um, so can I have a like hashtag research nerd moment? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, th- so the, you know, I just want to share with the listeners that like the, research support for the statements that you know Erica is making is just so solid that youth that uh, go to schools with um, non-discrimination and anti-bullying policies specific to being queer gender non-conforming are less likely to die from or attempt suicide having a gay straight alliance at school having trans affirmative like student groups. Um, one foot study found that like having one trusted adult that made the, the, the youth feel heard and safe decreased suicide attempts significantly. And so I just want to share that, like, if we're talking about like wanting to promote evidence-based policies, that this is like, we've got super strong evidence. This isn't like an area that is inconclusive or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I, I think like that's so encouraging to, 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 I forget the exact, you know, statistic, but yeah, the presence of one supportive adult in a queer youth's life, like decreases their thoughts of suicide by like 40% or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And same with like using their correct pronouns. And so this is a very tangible example of like what we were saying before, like, everyone can do something, um, to prevent suicide and like having, having that, um, that support from people in your life is just so important for young people. So, um, so yeah, again, that's, that's kind of what PRISM is trying to get at too. Cause we, we, we feel like, you know, if, if the youth has no one else who will respect their identity, then if they can call us and talk to us sometimes, and we can do that, like we want to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm curious, like, you know, rejection in the context of coming out to a family member is especially devastating. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about about that. <clears throat> For example, like, could a, a, a parent of a queer or trans child who's coming out and isn't sure how to handle that, like, what what resources might be available to that person? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I do think it's important that parents and, and caregivers of queer and trans youth are supported as well. So in, in PRISM, yes, we do talk to parents and caregivers, um, not like super often, but it happens. Um, we do have them reaching out and asking just kind of like, what do you, like, what do I do? Like basically looking for advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we love that. And we're happy to do that. Um, And we're happy to talk with parents and their kids as well. And that can be a very frank conversation. Like I've had very just straight up honest conversations with people. 
I can only speak for myself. Right. And, but I think the prism team like feels very similarly that like, you know, I want to be the the person that someone can come to with questions they might feel like are stupid. Like I'm comfortable talking about those things and like walking through concepts with people. And, and yeah, so that those are like, uh, that is an area of activity we do in prism. Um, and one other resource I just want to uplift um, as well that I would recommend people looking into is PFLAG. I, I think it stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays um, is the acronym, but uh, it applies for people, um, trans and gender non-conforming people as well. But, um, but yeah, basically PFLAG is uh, a support network for caregivers and friends and family of people who are LGBTQ. I know in Milwaukee, they have a group that meets in person once a month. And I know they're in different parts of Wisconsin and I'm sure many other places too. Um, so those are really good places to, to get, um, to get support on that from other people who are um, affirming and, and interested in helping other people understand. Yeah. Thank you, Erica. So um, just a couple of other questions real quickly about PRISM, you know, as you've gone through, and I, I just, I guess I want to just, reiterate that this is a program that you came up with like this is this is your this is your thing that you have given to the world and it's just it's absolutely beautiful absolutely. um it's such such a needed resource and yeah i just i think it's it's wonderful and you like develop this as part of your capstone project for your masters right yeah. <laughs> it's just that's wild i mean i see something like that come to fruition is is really really cool um, what are some of the successes and challenges that you've had in implementing the program um, over the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something I could talk about forever. <laughs> we, um, I mean, it's been a wild process for me because, like, like, like we said, I have um, worked. I worked on this in my capstone and my MPH. I have never developed or ran a program before, so that has been a totally new experience. But yeah, I think uh, in terms of successes. Um, some of the, like the the biggest successes have really come from like the groundwork that we built in the beginning of 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 the program. Um, so like after I hired my initial team of peer specialists, we had some time to focus on training, and in that time we were also just talking about what we wanted the program to look like. So we did a lot of just like getting to know each other and like learning together, and then cooperatively like trying to determine the path forward. And so. Um, we like came up with the name and the logo <laughs> over Zoom over several days um, and just talked about like, you know, what are our hours? How do we want to message our program? Who do we want to know about it? Um, like, who should we prioritize and outreach, first of all, and stuff like that. And like building from that base has has been really helpful because our, our team is is very solid and it's been really an honor to like build with them, too, because everyone has their own unique, you know, insight and wisdom to offer. And then, yeah, other other successes from there have really been in, in the response we get from people who use the program. We are definitely still like getting our roots down and people are definitely still learning about us. But since we initially started in February of 2021, um, we've had at least 400 contacts to the warm line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Holy All smokes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And That's most amazing. of them have been this year like in 2022. So it's definitely taken a while to sink in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's but, so excited. And uh, yeah. And I mean, even aside from the warm line, like we've met just 
over a hundred people easily, like through the groups, through like the in-person like visits that we do um, and stuff like that. So yeah, really, really been great response from those people. And people are the resounding messages that like, you know, I love talking to the prison peers. Like I can't find this level of support from anywhere else. Yeah. Congratulations. That is so exciting. And like, my mind just goes to like each of those points of contact, whether it's a caller to the warm line or like someone that participates in some of the educational work that you do, like that really there's, you're providing life-saving resources. And so uh, I just, I don't want that to be understated. So congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. We're always like, Oh, like we should be busier. But like that, that's a good perspective though. It's like those things like ripple out. Yeah. So I appreciate that. The other thing I just want to call out, like this is not on the same level as the number of, of calls you've had to the warm line, which is awesome. But the amazing stickers that you all developed is like your, some of your outreach. So way back when you started the program, you got me a stack of stickers and my daughter and her friends loved them. They're like these really cool, like hologram looking like silvery stickers. And they're so awesome. And so can people get those if they're interested in promoting the program? They're really cool. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. How could we forget the stickers? Yeah. Um, yeah. If people are interested in in those referral materials, please do reach out. Um, we can share my email with this. But uh, but yeah, they're, the stickers are really to like entice um, really anyone because everyone loves a shiny sticker. But we were yeah. like, how, how can we get used to, to think this is cool? Um, so yeah, the marketing success. I Yeah, never forget those stickers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you've encountered as you've been um, working through this program? Yeah. So um, I think, like I mentioned, like the virtual aspect is such a double-edged sword. And so especially in 2021, I think that's why we weren't as busy so I think that's part of it. Other challenges like really arise in, 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 I mean, this is also related to the virtual format. There's just something so unique about the interpersonal interaction via phone. And like, I know like everyone, like you might think like, oh, well, yeah, of course. But like, there's just, it's just a unique circumstance to be trying to support people in. And so um, like our certified peer specialist training is so valuable in preparing peer specialists to be good listeners and to be good communicators and and all that but it's definitely heavily geared towards in-person work and so for us like with most of our conversations happening via phone it's just challenging because like you think you're going to approach a conversation in a certain way and it just doesn't always work out like that. And people are coming to us with so many different situations and challenges. And so like, it, it just, it's just another thing to navigate and that we didn't really see coming. And um, yeah, so we've learned a lot as we have, as we've gone along about like how to hold space effectively over the phone. And I think that like, there's a great need for more trainings that really prepare you for answering the phone. Um, and I think anyone who's worked in any type of helpline, even if it's not like, even if it's not like a mental health line, like, I think they, they know, you know, what I'm referring to in that, like people just have a lot to say and they will come to you and it can be hard to, to navigate. Um, so yeah, that, that has been a challenge for sure. But because our team is really tight knit, we're really available to support each other in debriefing those things as well. 
Great. That's great. Yeah. It's so important to have that space to support um, each other in terms of members of your team. Yeah. 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 Anyone in any kind of provider role really needs that support as well, because yeah, being able to debrief is, is really helpful. Yeah. So if folks, you know, hearing this today are interested in getting involved or learning a little bit more about the prison program, is there a way for them to get involved with you all? Yeah. So um, the easiest thing that anyone can do that we would love is to um, help refer people to us and help get the word out. So, um, yeah, we do have those uh, cool, shiny stickers. We also have brochures and posters. We are happy to share those with really anyone. We give a lot to schools and health departments and like behavioral health, but we've had people reach out to us who are just like, hey, I wanna put these up at the restaurant I work at. So feel free to reach out and we can um, mail those to you. We also really appreciate sharing our stuff on social media. So the PRISM program has a uh, Facebook and Instagram and a TikTok. <laughs> and um, so again, we're trying to reach the youth and it genuinely helps us to, to share our posts because that's how you break through the algorithm. Um, yeah. yeah, so those things are really helpful. And I will say in the future, we do want to have more volunteer opportunities, especially for young people. So like my dream would be to have some kind of volunteer program for young people to like work with us and maybe learn a little peer support and and try their hand at providing peer support like in a mentorship way um in a mentored way like with another peer specialist um but that's a that's a long-term goal so definitely keep an eye out uh for more of those we will be sharing as as we develop them great thank you i, I didn't realize you all were on tiktok i'm gonna have to i'm trying to be i don't know yeah. Cool. <laughs> Trying to keep up with the kids. So I'll, uh, I'll follow you all on TikTok. That's great. Please do. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned PFLAG um, as a great organization. Are there other initiatives around the state that you'd like to uplift um, that are doing work in the space of helping queer and trans folks with suicide prevention or mental health or anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, GSAFE is an organization that provides support um, for GSAs in schools. And GSA, the, the historical name has been uh, Gay Straight Alliance. Um, now sometimes they're saying Gender Sexuality Alliance. They're all referring to the same thing. It's a, it's a student club that is a safe place for students to talk about LGBTQ things. So GSAFE as an organization is, is doing a lot of consultation with schools and the broader community, again, on LGBT topics and things like that. And so they deserve support because they are really doing a lot to increase that those protective factors in schools. And then another org I want to uplift um, that people may not know as much about is Forge Wisconsin. So it's F-O-R-G-E, Forge. And um, they are focused on trans health issues in a variety of, of different topics. So mental health is one of them, but um, they're more broad than that. They do a lot around uh, survivor support for trans people, whether that's um, surviving uh, abuse or um, homelessness and, and things like that. And so not, a, not directly mental health related, but certainly related in terms of um, supporting this community and um, doing again, like capacity building work in like healthcare and different things to improve that understanding as well. Great, thank you. Those are great resources to mention, so I appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything else that 
you want to mention that we haven't talked about today in terms of the prison program or the work that you do? I think the only other thing I'd add is encouraging the audience to to explore peer support if they haven't yet. Because I think as a practice, peer support is is really it holds so much potential for us to to build communities and connections that really support life and that can keep people, you know, in this world. And so um, it really, I think, is unique in its application for LGBTQ people because peer support is premised on uh, lived experience and mutuality. And so peer support creates the space to talk about like your queer or trans identity. Um, but that's, but like, so it's, it's uniquely helpful for queer and trans people and peer support as a practice is, is valuable for all kinds of communities and, and uh, supporting their mental health. And so I would encourage anyone who's really interested in like learning more about like, how do you hold space for people? How do you draw on your own experiences in a way that is helpful for other people? And like, how do we advocate better? I would encourage anyone who has that interest, no matter what your job is, whether it's directly mental health related or not, to, to look into like training opportunities and education around peer support. So uh, an, an organization you could follow is uh, IPS, which is Intentional Peer Support. Um, they have a website and they offer trainings that of different scales that can be applicable for different people. And in addition to that, like looking out for um, peer run uh, warm lines and respites throughout the state of Wisconsin that serve the general population in various places. And, uh, you know, keeping these resources on hand um, for yourself and for other people, just as another tool in the toolbox, right, to um, get people the support that they need and um, improve access, because it doesn't always have to be um, a therapist who's, who's um, addressing someone's mental health concerns. Um, peer support can be an alternative, it can be a supplement, and there really is, I think, space in that practice for everyone to get the care that they need. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think because, you know, care and recovery looks so different for everybody, it could be, you know, uh, like you said, it, it's just, it's it's another thing to help people um, as they're, you know, as they're working through their any challenges, day-to-day -day challenges or, or more severe mental health challenges. So thank you for that. Andrew, do you have any final questions or thoughts? No, just the expression of gratitude here, you know, Erica, again, for the, the work you and your team are doing and um, for sharing your time with us today. I, I wanted to see, could you share that the number again, just for folks that didn't grab that earlier? Yeah. yeah. So the PRISM program Warmline, our number is 414-336-7974. You can call or text and we are available seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Awesome. Thank you for uh, saying that again. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both so much for having me. I love getting to talk about this and yeah, I love the work that y'all are doing to expand the conversation on suicide prevention as well with this podcast. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks Erica. And thanks for, you know, uh, the work that you do and just being a, a wonderful human. It's, it's a pleasure to work with you and it's been a pleasure to chat with you today. Yes. So thanks for coming. Of course. Likewise. I just want to mention for folks that are listening that there are a number of resources. Erica mentioned a couple today. We mentioned some at the top of the podcast. 
I also wanted just to highlight an additional resource that is a peer-led resource. This is Alternatives to Suicide. There are Alternatives to Suicide groups that are available in Wisconsin. Um, you can look at those at mhawisconsin.org slash alt, the number two, and then the letters SU. You can find information on Alternatives to Suicide groups there in addition to our other resources like the Wisconsin Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 and the Crisis Text Line, um, you can reach by texting the word TALK to 741741. And that is it for today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks to those that have been listening to us for the last 12 months. It's so exciting. And we're really excited for more great episodes next year in 2023. So happy holidays and thanks everybody. Take care.